0: the power of their data. to Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see.
1: And welcome to it, and welcome to another edition of the Orioles Magic, uh, the podcast, Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. And
2: Jeff, great to see you, buddy. It's great to see you too as well, Brett. Uh, For those watching on video, I'm actually in a new location today, changing it up and just trying to get comfortable. We're also using the iPad today as opposed to using the computer. So hopefully these adjustments will make for a little bit better listening quality as we continue to do this podcast.
1: You sound good to me. You look great. Uh, somewhere in the Arnold layer you are. <laughs> <laughs> we won't
2: to disclose exactly where the Arnold is. Yeah, uh, are, undisclosed
1: but... location. Uh, your whereabouts <laughs> need to be top secret. Uh, well, we have a very special guest joining us uh, coming up today, uh, well-known to all Orioles fans, an, an all-time Oriole, uh, someone who's currently an Orioles broadcaster. Uh, Brian Roberts will join us to talk some baseball, but specifically to talk about, a really special night in Orioles history, the greatest comeback in club history, which he was a big part of. This is June 30, 2009. The Orioles against a, a highly touted Red Sox team that uh, was very good again that year. And uh, they had a 10-1 to lead at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in the seventh inning. And this mostly young Orioles team somehow staged a comeback against the Red Sox, including beating... Uh, Their all world closer at the
2: time, Jonathan Papelbaum. There was a a rain delay that took place. John Smoltz made the start in that game for the Red Sox after coming over from the Braves and was throwing the ball really well. But then because of how long that delay was, it meant they had to go to the bullpen. And Justin Masterson was throwing the ball really well for two innings. And then you get to the seventh inning and things go off the rails. He gives up five runs. You go to the eighth inning, that's where Brian Roberts gets involved. Nick Marcakis comes up with that. A eventual game winning double while Robert scores the eventual go ahead run in a game where you never thought Papelbon was going to have to appear.
1: Yeah. And, and really excited to talk to Brian on a number of fronts, but that game included a big hit in the bottom of the eighth inning that night, eventually came home on uh, the big Markakis blow that followed. And, uh, obviously, you know, Roberts plays most of his time in Baltimore through some really rough, rough seasons, but, uh, There were moments, and I remember very well, uh, covering that 09 club, where you felt, even though you were still another three years away from having a a really competitive playoff caliber uh, winning team, but there were moments. You saw some younger players coming through. This would be Adam Jones' second season as the everyday center fielder. Nick Markakis was firmly entrenched in right. Matt Wieters comes up in May of that year. Uh, there were signs of a core group, and uh, that proved to be true. And I, I'm really curious to talk to Roberts about this. Could he see that too? Because listen, let's face it: there were some highly touted guys and guys that people were very optimistic about that just didn't pan out the way everyone was hoping for in, in those uh, in that rough stretch of Orioles baseball. So, uh, but there were
2: some almost seedlings that were planted uh, in that time. And remember, too, Brett. I mean. Brian Roberts had an opportunity to to go into free agency and possibly get a different deal given the way that he had been playing. He'd been an all-star a couple of times going into that point, but he elected the, the next year to to sign a deal to remain a member of the Orioles, a place that he viewed as home. He's very loyal to. And so so I, I think that probably there were some signs, especially as you get weeders coming up and Marcakis very well could have been an all-star in that 2009 season. He had decent wins above replacement. And then Adam Jones was an all-star that year for the Orioles. And there were lots of signs on the offensive side that the team was beginning to get the pieces that it needed to go in the right direction. And eventually, a couple years later, you would see the Orioles make the playoffs and eventually end that terrible drought that they had been in. But, yeah, I'm also going to be interested to talk to, to him about that and about that that game in particular, because it had lots of twists and turns, and it was uh, certainly a surprising game. It was an entertaining one, and it was only one of two wins the Orioles had all year against the Red Sox.
1: That is amazing, and you pointed out something else that's very interesting to me, that the Orioles' two biggest comebacks in club history were both against the? Boston Red Sox. Okay, interesting. Then we just did the Andino game, end of 2011, and that, again, who was who the opponent there? Uh, that would be the Boston Red Sox. And by the way, speaking of Red Sox, uh, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, Jeff. I saw today that Steve Pierce announced his retirement. He was just on with us, so now we're retiring people. We're like a walk-off
2: interview. We're we're just getting that much clout during this quarantine <laughs> time, but uh, very happy for, for Steve Pierce. I mean, he he hadn't officially announced his retirement until today, but I, you got in the sense that, that you knew it was coming, and, Exciting to see a guy that worked so hard and had a great year with the Orioles. He was a huge part of that 2014 team. I don't think that club is is the same without him and some of the role players, as we detailed on on his episode. Uh, but a guy that grinded out for a really long time. It took him a while to get to 100 games played in the major leagues in a, in a given year. But he ended up accruing a lot of major league service time. And was a great guy, a great teammate would do whatever it is that that Buck Showalter needed him to do. And uh, best of luck to him uh, in retirement.
1: Yeah, I uh, will echo those sentiments. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to the one and only B-Rock. All right, let's take you back to Tuesday, June 30, 2009, at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And let's bring on our guest for this podcast, and that is former Orioles all-star Brian Robertson, currently obviously a broadcaster with us at Masson. B-Rod, how are you? Hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? Well, it's great to see you. How you holding up uh, in these interesting and difficult times?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think as well as everybody else, for the most part, you know, we have a uh, six and a three-year-old at home, so it keeps life very, very interesting. Um, never a bored moment, that's for sure. But we're, uh, you know, you, you heard for those who are going through more difficult times than we are, that's for sure, those who have been sick and um, the people who are caring for them and that sort of stuff. So we're grateful just to be healthy at this point.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we echo those sentiments. Uh, well, let's take you take us back to, to this game. You know, the Orioles obviously are, are in a transitional period. There is some life. I mean, you obviously are having a great season. Nick Markakis is entrenched and right. Adam Jones is year two as the team center fielder. Matt Wieters was called up a month earlier. But the Red Sox build what seems to be almost, a, unfortunately, a normal night at the ballpark against the teams like the Red Sox, Yankees. A 10-1 lead in the seventh inning, after a rain delay. Is there? I mean, what is the mood in the clubhouse? That and the dugout that the team could actually mount a comeback in this case?
3: <laughs> no, uh, everybody was searching for food at that point. You know, just to try and find a way. That's what you do during rain delays: eat, eat, and more eating. So. I don't know that we were thinking about a 10 to one comeback at, at that point. Uh, you know, you just want to go back out and, and start to chip away. I mean, that's what you you you'd kind of do is you try to get one, you try to get two and, and in that sort of game, against a team like the Red Sox uh, during that time period, uh, you're really just trying to make the game interesting at that point. I think more than anything and, and bring some life to your dugouts. And all of a sudden you get one or two and, and then maybe you start to get a little bit of life in the dugout, but during the rain delay, you know, it's also hard. We were in last place. They're in first place. The fans start to leave the game during the rain delay. You come back out, there's not a ton of energy in the ballpark. So um, a 10-to-1 comeback, I think, was probably pretty far from our mind.
2: When you got into the seventh inning, that's where you started to get a little bit of the energy going. But Smoltz start of the game was throwing really well, but he had to come out because of the rain delay. And then Justin Masterson comes in. He throws two really good innings. But in that seventh inning, he runs into all kinds of trouble. What changed for you guys in that inning?
3: Well, I mean, really, it's you, you want to get a base runner on base. and I think we got one guy on, and I believe it might have been Lou Scott, hits a ball off the wall, um, which probably in some ways saves you because a two-run homer doesn't really do you a lot of good. In fact, a lot of times they'll call home runs at those times rally killers, and and you want to keep guys on base. and And when pitchers are throwing the ball well and they haven't had a lot of base runners, everybody in the dugout says, let's get them in the stretch, you know, and just see if something changes. And I think that that probably changed as much as anything was you get a guy uncomfortable, you get him on somebody on base, and they have to change their routine. Um, and then all of a sudden a, a base hit here, a base hit there, and you score one or two, as I was saying, you start to chip away. And uh, then they have to go to a different pitcher. And, and then you start to build some confidence. And um, in a moment like that, I think that's really what began to happen in the seventh inning for us.
1: And then you get to the eighth inning. You start that eighth inning. You're still down four runs against the Red Sox. And they have Papelbon somewhere in that bullpen. At some point, you know, if it gets interesting, he's going to come out. You get a big knock down the left field line, batting left-handed. And then you come home for the go-ahead run on the Marquecas double to the left center field gap. I mean, it is – I remember watching this, actually, going back now, I guess, 11 years. It was shocking. The Orioles are not supposed to come back against the red sox if it's two runs let alone eight or nine in this case 10-1
3: yeah this was something unfortunately so often we saw it go the other way around we didn't we weren't on this end of it as much as i would have liked to have said we were and you know i did kind of go back because i couldn't remember all the details of the game um and i didn't realize i guess when i came up in the eighth inning i was 0 for 18 my last 18 at the time (laughs) and there's something about I guess being in that environment, being in that situation where all of a sudden the game's on the line and you maybe lock your concentration in a little bit more than you would have if it was still nine to one or 10 to one. And I was able to slice one down the third baseline. And then, uh, and I believe Jeremy Guthrie pinch ran at second base. We used him sometimes cause he was, you know, he was a terrific athlete and ran pretty well. And I look up and he's on sack And, um, when hits sits that ball in the gap, my goal was to catch him as more than anything, but, uh, I can remember crossing home plates and you're thinking, wow, this is, you know, this is really happening. We are, we've now scored 10 unanswered against a Red Sox team and a Red Sox bullpen that had been you know really good all year.
2: And Papelbon was a big part of that. I mean, how big too did that win mean considering you got it against Papelbon who entering that game was 20 for 20 in save tries against you guys. Yeah.
3: Papelbon was just lights out. I mean, You kind of knew it was almost uh, it was very similar to when Rivera would come in the game or Kimbrell or those guys. I mean, it was game over, essentially, when when Pap would come in the game during those years in Boston. And they did bring him in, I believe, with first and second and and Marquegas gets a big hit. Um, But Nick, you know, Nick can just flat out hit and it didn't matter who it was. And in that situation, that's classic Marquegas use the left center gap, drive a ball for a double and, and able to score two. So. Uh, to do it against them, and then obviously to get that final hit against Papelbon and score those two final runs against him, kind of icing on the cake at that point.
1: Brian, I, I w- feel free to reject this one, but I remember there was like a six or eight-week period in May of June of 2009 where Weathers gets called up and the team plays really well. It was a home series against Detroit. There was a lot of energy for obvious reasons in the ballpark. I remember uh, it was either that weekend or the next weekend I think it was the second game of that Detroit series. Ferguson has his dominant performance against the Tigers. You know, he's a rookie pitcher having a terrific year. Uh, the battery of Ferguson of and Weeters and Reimold hits a walk-off home run. Then you have this comeback against the Red Sox. In my mind, uh, there were kind of these seeds that you thought were maybe growing a little bit and saying, hmm, at least offensively you could kind of see uh, what could be. I mean, is that, was that going through your mind or was that totally illogical just from, from my standpoint looking back? No,
3: absolutely. In fact, it's um, the offseason before the 2009 season was when I signed my final four-year uh, contract extension. And that was one of the reasons why. I really believed that we were going in the right direction. Um, I thought we had some, some serious pieces in place. As you mentioned, Jonesy was really turning into a terrific player in center field. Mark Takis was was going to be great uh, and continue to be great. Weeters, you know, he comes up in Sports Illustrated, he's on the front cover, and he's going to be the next man. Nolan Reimold had really become a stud at one point for a while. Luke Scott, you know, was, um, was providing power from the left side of the plate. We felt like we had some arms coming up. So, no, I, I don't disregard what you're saying whatsoever. I think we really did believe that we were going in the right direction, um, you know, for whatever reason. We
2: just kind of couldn't seem to ever put it all together for another couple of years. What stood out to you the most about Weeders when he finally got his call up?
3: Um, man, I would just say his maturity, you know, to be able to handle the kind of hype that he had, to be able to handle the publicity, to be able to come in as a rookie, um, and and, you know, almost like need to be the guy, or at least that's what people were kind of expecting. Um, he was so mature in it all. And I, and I don't know, I think that's part of just who he is. Um, but I think that that was probably what stood out the most to me about Matt. That and then the fact that he just cared so much about his game preparation for pitchers more than anything. You know, the offensive side was what he had been known for, you know, hitting 340 in the minor leagues and being a switch hitter and, you know, being the next who-knows-who as an offensive catcher was who he was supposed to be. What he really prided himself on was, was handling a pitching staff right from the start.
1: On the Weeders uh, uh, question, obviously the Orioles draft – another catcher this was the first overall pick last year in Adley Rutschman needless to say fans are gonna make that comparison and some of the baseball world will it's probably unfair uh but for a guy like from Rutschman is there any lessons to be learned from Matt Wieters who ends up being a multi-time all-star a really good player but I'm sure in some people's minds it would be an impossible standard to fill whatever the expectations were going in
3: no I agree with you 100% and The standards that Matt had to try and live up to were were unfair from day one. You know, his career has been phenomenal when you look at it. As you mentioned, multi-time All-Star. And I think Adley's going to have to deal with some of that same um, hype, some of the same expectations. There's no doubt being a number one overall pick, being a switch hitting catcher, you know, being very similar to Matt Wieters in a lot of ways. The one thing that I feel like, you know, I have tried to caution people about is it's very difficult in my opinion, to be that guy as a catcher full-time, um, to be the guy that, you know, hits 320 and catches every day because you, you're not going to be in the lineup every single day. You're only going to play 120 games maybe, um, and you're going to take a beating behind the plate. So it will be interesting. Um, I hope that people uh, can at least, you know, keep their expectations curbed slightly uh, for Adley at least early on in his career, let him get his feet wet, um, and hopefully he doesn't have to be the guy right away.
2: How important are it to get a couple of the wins like you had in that game against Boston during a time where, you know, it's, that was a time where the Orioles were losing 90 games a year or more, and, and now you're at a point where you're still going through this rebuild process. How, how much does it matter to get wins like you guys had that particular night just as a way to keep your fan base engaged and be like, okay, there's a glimmer of hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel?
3: Yeah, I mean, I do think wins are important. You know, for one, fans will look at kind of a roster accumulation as well as a minor league organization to see how much excitement there really is moving forward. You know, one win in the middle of June or end of June maybe not necessarily is going to build your fan base back up. But I think the fans were seeing um, the prospects. I think the fans were seeing the potential in those young players that I mentioned earlier with Jonesy and Marquecas, um, Rymold and Luke Scott and those guys and then also certainly some of the young arms and then you you know you fast forward a year from that basically was when Buck Showalter was hired and and the you know the tides kind of began to turn so yeah I mean I think that that win is all those wins are important but I don't know how much necessarily one win at the end of June with a team that's in last place is going to fire up your fan base necessarily.
1: Everyone always talks about, and for good reason, Jones and Tillman coming back for Eric Bedard. Lost in that is George Sherrill, who walks the tightrope a little bit in that ninth inning, protecting that one-run lead after an incredible comeback. But he does nail it down against the Red Sox. That was his 17th save. He had a sub-two ERA at the end of this game. I believe that's the year he's he's representing the Orioles in the All-Star game in New York. I think he had to pitch like three scoreless innings in that All-Star game, which was kind of ridiculous. But uh, uh, George Sherrill, what, what, what was he like in the back end? Of a bullpen.
3: Oh, I mean, George was by far the most underrated piece of that trade. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you're talking about, I believe he made two all-star teams when he was with us. And, I mean, to say that that was almost like a throw-in piece, it really goes to speak volumes of what Andy McPhail and those guys did in those trades and who they were able to get in return for Eric Bedard. For one, it shows how good Eric Bedard was at one point for the Orioles. I mean, he was flat-out dominant for a year and a half. Um, but George was terrific at the back end of the bullpen. We believed every day that George was going to close it out. As you mentioned, it got a little dicey at times. Um, The stuff was not electric. It's not what you see at the back end of bullpens these days, Uh, but he had a mindset. He had that bulldog mentality that he was going to go after you. He had really good location. He painted fastballs kind of in and out, and it just seemed that George always got the job done, even though he made you sweat a little bit.
2: Nick Markakis very well could have been an all-star that particular season for you guys too. I mean, the numbers were really good. was playing every day. I think he played 161 games for you guys that season. When, when you were at a, a spot like you were, to see somebody like Markakis and setting the tone for some of the younger guys on the team, which he would continue to, to do for the, the course of uh, his time in Baltimore, I mean, what did his production and his leadership mean to you guys at that point?
3: Well, Nick should have been a multi time all-star in Baltimore. I mean, there's no doubt about it in my mind. He was as steady as it gets when you look at players. I mean, you can see it now, almost twenty five hundred hits later, the guy just goes out and does his job every day. Not a whole lot of fanfare. He doesn't push himself or his agenda. He just wants to go out and do his job. And um, I think that was really what Nick brought more than anything to our locker room and to the field was a lead by example type of approach. He was gonna be a workman like uh, guy, he was going to get his work in quietly, play his 160 games every single year, hit his 300, drive in 90, hit 15 to 20 homers, and nobody was going to pay attention except the guys on his team, you know, and other guys around the league. To me, it was very unfortunate that he didn't get as much recognition, you know, as he should have. He, got, he won gold gloves, which I think was great, but I really believe he should have been an all-star numerous times. Um, and I think he was big for guys like Adam Jones. I think he was huge. Uh, a huge example for him. And I believe Adam really um, molded himself after Nick when it came to wanting to play every day. And then you go and you see guys like Manny Machado end up playing 162 games and Jonathan and Scope play 162 games. I think 100% Nick Markakis was the guy that set that example for them.
1: Brian, uh, Mark Hendrickson came on relief in that game, three innings, four hits, one run, a couple of strikeouts. Obviously, as someone who's a former NBA player, would he at that time, have won a one-on-one basketball tournament versus the rest of the Orioles team. If if there was such a tournament set up, could he have won that tournament?
3: Uh, let's see here. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um I can't think of anybody. I'm not, you know. Well how many Jones would you have gotten off? Of regret-
1: what'd you say? How many would you have gotten off him of playing to eleven or twenty-one?
3: Oh, myself? Yeah. I think if we were playing to eleven, it probably would have been um I'd say 11 to zero. Yep, zero. Wow, okay. mean, (laughs) blocked a lot of shots. Yeah, his wingspan. I mean, he was 6'9". His wingspan was huge. He had played in the NBA. I mean, this wasn't just some guy who played high school basketball who happened to be tall. You're talking about a guy who actually played in the NBA. Um, I think maybe the one guy who could have scored some points might have been Adam uh, just because he had some height, he's got some strength, he's got some athletic ability. You know, I think he could have bodied up against him a little bit. Besides that, I don't know that anybody was going to score uh, more than one point against Mark during that time.
2: B-Rob, if you were playing right now and you're in this current quarantine situation, what would you try and be doing to stay in shape so that when we have baseball, hopefully sooner rather than later, that you're pretty much ready to go? Yeah, I've thought
3: about that a little bit. You know, I've seen what some guys are doing out there or trying to do to stay in shape. And, you know, if you don't have a full home gym, and it's, it's tough to to get yourself in, in in that kind of shape or stay in that kind of shape that you were in going into spring training. And um, we do family workouts in my house right now, my wife, myself, my kids. Um, and we have enough equipment to put out in the driveway or in the garage to to do some stuff. But I can assure you I'm not in baseball shape. So um it's a difficult time for guys to try and figure out how to make that work and uh you've seen I saw a video I think of Joey Gallo hitting off a tee in his apartment um you know in a high rise in Dallas (laughs) Uh, guys are doing anything at this point to at least try and stay somewhat baseball ready but I think the biggest thing that we all have to realize is that most guys will not be ready to play for a little while it's going to take them you know, I, in my opinion, a good four weeks to get back into baseball shape whenever that is, just because they haven't had access to the kind of training or throwing opportunities or hitting opportunities that they're accustomed to going into spring training.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess it would take three or four weeks, and then especially being cautious with pitching uh, coming back. And, and the worst thing would be uh, to compile and, and pile up injuries on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine um, running Justin Merlander or Garrett Cole out there who's not prepared and and they blow out because they only had two weeks to get ready to pitch. I mean, that, Major League Baseball and the Union, they will, they'll obviously look at that very seriously because injury is the biggest fear at this point of running guys out that aren't prepared or aren't ready. And so they're going to have to come up with a time frame that all the players feel comfortable that they can, you know, be ready to really go 100% when it's that day. Um, and in my opinion, that's no less than four weeks probably, especially if you're trying to have a starting pitcher You know, your ace pitcher would be ready to go six innings in game one. He's got to have probably four weeks.
2: What was your take on the plan to have Grapefruit League teams play in Florida and then same thing with Cactus League teams where you get rid of the American League, National League for for just a year? Because that, to me, seemed like it was going to be a little bit more feasible than trying that Arizona plan, which to me at least didn't seem like it was, was going to work out.
3: Yeah, I don't think the Arizona plan seemed feasible to anybody, really. At least I, I, did, I agree with you 100%. I didn't see that as a real option. I mean, I thought the, um, uh, the ingenuity and the creativeness of the Florida and Arizona mixing uh, leagues that way and finding ways that teams would be at least reasonably close in proximity um, was probably the best option if they had to go to something extreme. Um, I think that's probably as close as you're going to get to being a realistic option. The hard part is I just don't think players are going to want to play with no fans in a spring training complex at one a, at 1 pm every other day uh, you know I just I'm just not sure the reality of that I think more importantly um, than guys going out right now and getting a paycheck or playing is that we have to get society back to at least some sort of normalcy where fans feel comfortable going to games um, and and I don't know when that is nobody really knows when that is but I will be just me personally I will be shocked if they actually go forward with one of those plans where you know they actually play games with no fans in the stands or or something like that.
1: Yeah, and it, I'm sure the perspective is different for you as you've gotten older now with family and kids and it's different for every player in their in their current situation. Yeah,
3: 100% I mean the Arizona plan I could, I could just imagine me going to my wife and being like hey uh you know, I love you guys so much. I'm going to take off to Arizona for about four months. I'll see you guys in, you know, in October. Uh, you guys stay safe. I mean, that, <laughs> that's not going to work for most people. You know, they're a- as supportive as their families are. It doesn't make sense. It's not, it doesn't, there's no common sense in that, in my opinion, to, uh, to ask players to abandon their families in a time like this, to go play the game of baseball. It's important, but it's not that important.
2: What does a Roberts family home workout entail? <laughs> uh, let's see here. We, uh, we bring out the ladder, like the,
3: the uh, agility ladder. So my six-year-old does some agility ladder. I do some agility ladder with them. Um, we, we have some boxes that we jump on. We have a TRX hooked up to the uh, ceiling of the garage. Uh, I have some kettlebells and some dumbbells. We do all sorts of lifting and running and that sort of stuff. My kid, uh, my six-year-old likes to be timed running, sprinting around the house. So uh, he does time laps <laughs> around the house. <laughs> my time lap days around the house are long over, so I don't do those. But, um, but we just try to stay active, you know, find something to, to, um, to keep our bodies moving, be outside, get some vitamin D, get the kids burning some energy off and that sort of thing.
1: It's about where we are. I was doing a full-scale combine in my backyard when this thing began. Then I was just saying, let's go to a local football field and let's do straight sprints to the end zone. And hopefully that wears you out by the time (laughs) the afternoon rolls around until movie time starts. Exactly, it is like, it is how tired can
3: we make them by 7.30 so that once they go to bed, there's no noise out of that room
1: because mommy and daddy are ready to go to bed. (laughs) That is, uh, that's Netflix time or or something like that. brian we appreciate it so much we hope you and your family are doing all right and we really are hoping we can see you again in person soon
3: yeah absolutely guys
1: thanks for having me you guys stay safe all right that is uh former oriole, oriole broadcaster currently former all-star brian roberts brian thank you again all right thanks guys. well great to hear and see uh brian roberts jeff uh, i know someone you've worked with uh closely over the last few months and obviously someone who has a lot of uh, ideas and a lot of energy and enthusiasm so uh good to hear from brian and his thoughts looking back at that game in 09 that great comeback that he was a big part of but also uh talking about
2: baseball right now brian when i got an opportunity to work with him at spring training i was told just how smart of a guy he was and how his insights were really strong and we heard a bunch of those on the podcast today but also getting to work two different games with him. I was like, this guy has a lot of really good stuff to add. And I just think when I'm working with him, I feel like I learned stuff about baseball. And I think just the, the people that get an opportunity to to listen to him or, or watch him when he does a game on, on the TV side, you can only benefit and, and, it, and it just makes you feel like you know a little bit more about the game than before you either turned on the radio or you, you put it on online or, or before you put the TV on.
1: So switching gears here, Jeff, uh, Orioles
2: uh, GM Mike Elias
1: uh, spoke to reporters uh, via a Zoom meeting on Monday, talking about a number of things, from the draft to what baseball activities are getting done, to obviously speculating, as we all are. I mean, let's face it here, we're doing nothing more than speculating at this point. Uh, But it was an interesting thing. I think what's important to note is that he said the operations of the ball club are not only you know, active, but they're advancing in some ways. They're doing things now that they felt they didn't have time to do before. And then once you get into a baseball season, you really can't do because of the day-to-day grind of things as they continue to build up their, their digital, their analytics. They are fully preparing right now for a draft. They don't know how many rounds they'll have, five to 40, uh, likely more like five to 10, but they're preparing for 40. And uh, they're
2: making those decisions, which will obviously impact this organization for years to come. And I think the draft is kind of like the the, the World Series or, or the Super Bowl for the Orioles I agree. at this point because and the draft is going to be a little bit different for everybody this year. And the Orioles in, in the past have been a team they've been able to get some good steals in some of the later rounds. That's probably not going to be an opportunity this year, just because it's going to be five to 10 rounds. But when you think about it, and Mike mentioned this in the conference call yesterday, a lot of your best high school prospects, they're they're going in those first five rounds anyways. So I think it's encouraging just how much work and time they have to be able to put into the draft and to focus on that. They're going to put an entire draft board together, all 40 rounds. And if you don't use that information this year, then you can go back and use it next year. But uh, Elias is very experienced at doing this whole draft thing. He was doing that in Houston. He was leading the effort there. And so they can really zero in on, on some of the guys that they're going to be going up against. But the, the, the encouraging thing is if you're still going five to ten rounds, you still get those four picks in the first 75, including the number two pick overall. So the fact that you're not losing any of those high selections is still leaving you pretty excited, I think, if you're an Orioles fan.
1: Yeah, and if you're an Orioles fan, you're rooting for more rounds just because the Orioles are looking to really infuse as much young talent as they possibly can in the organization. But what's most important is the picks you mentioned—four uh, picks in the first 75, including two overall. And it's my understanding, Jeff, as I know you know, that this is apparently a very good draft, a very top 100 player draft, and the Orioles are picking a lot in that group. And, and it's a very college-heavy draft, and it's a good year for those things. But even then, there's still limited data. If you're a player, uh, you did not get the bulk of your college season. As uh, Mike said on Monday, that it will heavily weight towards players who were able to you know, somewhat produce early, even in cold-weather environments. And We know that's just the reality of February-March baseball. And uh, it's going to be unfortunate for some. Now, a lot of high school kids are going to go to college. A lot of college kids are going to go back to college, um, which in the end will probably benefit them. Uh, but the really cream-of-the-crop college players, they're going to go out, they're still going to get drafted high, and they're going to make uh, – over time, they're signing bonuses as a typical year would go. Uh, so th- that group has no benefit to go back to school
2: and, and then uh, re-enter the draft which it's just more stocked next year. Yeah, and you've got a massive bonus pool, which is available to you. And, and I think there's going to be an emphasis, too, uh, especially on how did this player perform in a summer collegiate league if they were there the year before, to go back and look at some of that video or to look at some of the reports when you were watching those different players in person and refer to those different kinds of, of metrics and and things that you were able to see on your own as you're going about this process. So that makes it a little bit tougher if if you're somebody that's later on in your college career, if you're a high school player that shows some promise but are one of those colder weather states, if you didn't do so well on the showcase circuit the year before or didn't play so well in maybe your, your sophomore or junior year of college, then maybe it's not going to be as as lucrative because the other part of this is, you know, for free agent signings, you can't go over $20,000. So that's really gonna cause a lot of players to be going back to college. And, and right now, that's a, that's a whole mess, um, given the fact that all those seniors are gonna be given an extra year of eligibility. So this is a, a pretty complicated situation from a, a lot of different standpoints. Um, but I think the best players are, are still gonna be, like you said available to be drafted they're going to want to start their professional careers and if they get an opportunity to join an organization like the Orioles they know they're going to have all these resources at their disposal and opportunities to hopefully get to the major league sooner rather than later.
1: Let's face it the rippling effects of what we're dealing with right now purely from a baseball and professional sports perspective will be felt for some time uh, whether in baseball you're talking about the amateur draft uh, will there be even Uh, any summer leagues this year to watch next year's crop. I mean, who knows what the future holds the freeze on international signings for right now. Uh, So we'll be feeling this in some way for some time. Eventually there'll be some aspect of normalcy, but who knows? I mean, it's going to take some time, obviously beyond the major league component and playing games, whenever that does happen, uh, whether it's now or later, but there's going to be a major uh, backlog of of events that get impacted by this. It goes without saying right now, uh, but, no matter what, it looks like the Orioles are going to be able to draft and they'll be able to pick a lot early, which is one of the benefits of being really bad as they've been the last few years, including that second overall pick. And Jeff, let me tell you, if there's no baseball soon, you're going to see me watching old videos of some of these top college players that I I'm going to be the Mel Kuiper of the baseball draft. This <laughs> you might see me with a big, big board behind me. And I'm going to tell you about that, that shortstop at Vanderbilt and that big right-hander from Georgia and, 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 and all these players, Uh, and you'll be McShay, I'll be
2: Kuiper and we'll just go at it. Yeah, we could do that. Or the other thing is we could learn, um, what, what is it? Chinese baseball started like, uh, like in empty stadiums like the other day. Yeah, I think in Taiwan. Yeah, in Taiwan. So we could maybe start learning some, some Taiwanese or some Chinese and, uh, start like getting into this, this baseball thing. I mean, that's, that's a possibility. I, I think your idea might be, a little bit better, um but but th- there is some baseball out there. It just it happens to be in a in a different side of the world, but uh, but yeah, yeah in a far I, away I, land. I, I am with you though There is and it's and it's not like really clear cut this year in the draft as to who that number one overall pick is going to be. there are, There are a lot of arguments. It sounds like there are about five different players that very well could be the number one overall pick. Last year, I think it was pretty much viewed as, as Rushman was the, the consensus number one overall this year. There are a bunch more options and and a lot of talented guys, especially on the college side in, in at the very beginning of that, that draft. But uh, I'll be interested to see uh, where the Orioles decide to go at, at number two. Some of that will be dictated by what the Tigers decide to do with the, the first overall pick, but um, there are a number of different directions that you can go with this pick and, and so I think that, that Michael Elias and his staff having some extra time to weigh that will will certainly appreciate it as they try and figure out who do we pick number two overall.
1: Let's get serious. At some point in this podcast, we need to have on somebody from Baseball America and kicking around with them. I know you're right. It's about five college players uh, that could go one, two, three, four, five. It seems to be that closely tied together, um, including uh, the big first baseman uh, who, who might go one, he might go two, he might go three. Uh, I really like this Vanderbilt shortstop. Uh, I just think he might go one. So, Martin, uh, you might not have a choice. So, we'll see. But I'm already excited about the draft. So, that's something to look forward to as the Orioles try to add a big piece for their future. Uh, well, Jeff, that does it for uh, this edition of the podcast. Always a lot of fun. And, and obviously, people can hear us at Orioles.com
2: slash podcast. But they can get us pretty much everywhere else. Find podcasts or download. Friday and Mondays is when we drop. And uh, if you got any questions for us, you know, maybe drop us a, a note on Twitter and we can go into some of your questions as we try and look uh, not only back at, at great Orioles wins from the past and great moments in Orioles history, but as also we prepare for the future and uh, hopefully baseball soon because uh, I'm, I'm still visiting my parents, and I don't know how much longer they've got with me before they want to kick me out.
1: Oh, I think they can handle a little Jeff Arnold. <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> we'll talk soon, buddy.
2: All right, Brett, you be well.